reign from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days, when a king Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many, many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast, lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray. Lord, we pray now as we come to consider your word that you would please add your blessing to it. Father, we pray along with our brother, King David, who said, open my eyes that I might see wonderful things in your law. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the book of Esther is one that is very dear to the heart of most of us. Many of us, perhaps you've gone through a vacation Bible school in which you covered that parts of the book of Esther and you thought about aspects of the gospel of Jesus Christ that are presented to us in this great book. It's one of those books that maybe you're the person who you kind of get around Exodus chapter 19 or 20 and the narrative ends and you get to all the dictations of the law and you stop there and you go to Esther. And then Esther and Job and Psalms because Esther has that wonderful, it's a wonderful plot. It's easy to follow. It's easy to read. It reads like a short story. It's what we call a U-shaped plot because we begin with this pomp and this majesty and then we dip down into, into the drama and the conflict and we end up on top again in victory. Um, many times it's been turned into a feature film which uh, like many Christian films, receives mostly one-star ratings. Um, one reviewer describing it as utterly dreadful in almost every way. Uh, this is because uh, of the liberties that are taken with the film. So uh, maybe as we get to the end of Esther, you can have a, a watch party for a one-star movie. But this evening, I want us to take some time to think about the plot of Esther. It is so so important for us to get the right frame of reference as we talk about this, this book. And so we'll begin just by looking at the setting of Esther um, 
from the first nine verses or so, we're not in Israel anymore. We're not in Jerusalem. We are in the kingdom of Persia. The empire of Persia was vast. You notice as we're reading there in the first verse that in the days of Ahasuerus, that is the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. This was a vast empire. You think about stretching from India all the way into into the continent of Africa and the kingdom of Ethiopia. Persia, at its height covered some 2.1 million square miles. How do you put that into a frame of reference? Well, the United States of America is 3.8 million square miles. So just over half of what the United States of America covers was encompassed by the kingdom of Ethiopia. We notice also from the text in verse Uh, Two, that in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. Susa was the capital. It was the seat of the Persian Empire. If you want to think about that in modern terms, it is the city of uh, Shush today. It is situated just on the western border of Iran. In fact, the Persians... um, Iranians are essentially Persians. The, uh, the, the Persian folks had arrived in this little niche there in roughly 1000 BC in the early stages of the uh, Israelite kingdom. And they set up the seat of their empire there in the city of, of Susa. It, it continues to exist, obviously not in its glory as it once So then, in Ahasuerus' time, the empire had expanded its borders both west uh, all the way into Africa and east into India. And so as a result, the empire had become exceedingly wealthy. Note uh, in verse 6 there uh, that Ahasuerus was giving a... A, a great feast and a party dedicated to his own glory to demonstrate his own greatness. In verse 6, there were white cotton curtains. This is inside the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. The empire of Persia was very, very wealthy. In fact, we still today refer to a certain type of rugs as Persian uh, rugs. The wealth of the empire, as you read this description, you hear uh, maybe, and even in an Israelite ear, you would hear uh, something that sounded very similar to the wealth at the height of Solomon's kingdom, as we hear described in 1 Kings chapter 10. The marble or mosaic pavement was something that uh, was, was standard in the lavish 
palaces of this day. And you think about mosaics today um, where you take various types of tile and you cut them into different shapes and ultimately the layout of all of those tiles will form a picture. The tiles of this day were somewhat different. They, would, they wouldn't dye them, they wouldn't paint them. Instead, they would import from various places all over the empire tiles of various colors and then lay them down to form a beautiful picture. The empire was vast and it was exceedingly wealthy. We notice another thing about the setting of Esther. It took place during the reign of a man by the name of Ahasuerus. Perhaps if you if you've studied uh, ancient Mesopotamian history in school, you remember the name Xerxes. Xerxes the first is another name. It is the Greek name for Ahasuerus. He was born in around five nineteen. B.C. He ruled Persia from about 486 to 465 B.C. Now to set this in a little bit of context for you, you remember that as we were thinking, we're tracking along the biblical timeline, uh, you'll remember that Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians conquered and destroyed uh, the southern kingdom of Israel in roughly 587, 586 B.C. You remember Nebuchadnezzar came in and they burned everything to the ground and destroyed the temple. Well, the Persians conquered the Babylonians and they, they sort of shared their rule of the regions, region with the Medes. And so if a, if a, 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 a Median... Um, ruler came to power, then he would favor the Medes. But if a Persian ruler came to power, he favored the Persians. And in this case, we have a Persian king in Ahasuerus. The Persian conquest of Babylonia took place in roughly 539 B.C. You remember the Persians especially because it was during the Persian reign that God began to turn the hearts of the foreign kings to favor His people once again. Remember, at the close of the Hebrew Scriptures, they don't end with Malachi, they end with the book of Second Chronicles. And what's so significant about the end of Second Chronicles is the Israelite king, the descendant of David, is set free from his shackles. And that leads us, as I've said before again, into the book of Matthew and the genealogy of Christ. It was Cyrus, then who we have referenced at the end of 2 Chronicles, who, who signed a decree who first permitted the Jews to begin returning to Israel, to Jerusalem, um, and to rebuild the city. We find that in Ezra chapter 1. Cyrus had as a son-in-law a man by the name of Darius. Now turn over with me just for a second to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. <clears throat> Remember that Darius succeeded Cyrus as the emperor 
in Persia, and we find in Daniel 6, it pleased Darius, this is our same Darius, to set over the kingdom 120 satraps or governors, you think about, over these various provinces. Uh, Think again, your mind going back to to, uh, the book of Esther, and we read that Ahasuerus had 127. So he had expanded the empire somewhat. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. You remember how the story goes. Some of the satraps came to Darius and said, we want you to sign a decree stating that no man may pray to any other god for 30 days. Well, Daniel, being a godly man, refused to submit to the governing authorities, and he was subsequently punished by being placed into the lion's den. Notice how the story ends if you flip over to Daniel chapter 6, verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. It's pretty profound languages, isn't it? Language, isn't it? Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion from India, that is, to Ethiopia, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For He is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this is coming up just before we reach the book of Esther. You see then that the Lord is beginning to turn the hearts of the enemies of Israel to His people. It was Darius then in Ezra chapter 6 who enabled the building of the temple, the rebuilding of the temple to resume. That rebuilding was concluded in roughly 516 B.C. This king, Darius, took a woman to be his wife named Atossa, who was the daughter of Cyrus as his wife, and together they had a son by the name of Ahasuerus. He was the second born and yet seen as fit to rule over his elder brother. There's a biblical theme there. Let's talk just for a moment about the timing. If you flip back now to the book of Esther, I want to note just something about the timing of this book and these historical events which we take them to be. We notice in verse 3, let's pick up verse 2. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year, 
of his reign. So this takes place during the third year of Ahasuerus' reign. And again, just trying to, to, to help you plot this out in your mind, uh, Jerusalem fell 587, 586 B.C., The people were taken into captivity. They were dispersed throughout all of these lands. And then in 516 B.C., they had returned. Really a fraction of the people, roughly 42,000 people had returned to the land. Uh, This was a a fulfillment of prophecy in, in part. A tiny taste of the people returning to their land Roughly 42,000 or or one tribe, as it were. By 516 B.C., they had finished rebuilding the temple. And so now, as Ahasuerus rises to power, another roughly 50 years has passed. So this is more than 100 years after the fall of Jerusalem and roughly 50 years after the return to, to Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple. Well, here we are in the third year of Ahasuerus' reign, and he has accumulated great wealth, inherited and accumulated for himself. He, he saw himself as a very ambitious ruler. He actually sought to conquer the Greeks, and he was turned back twice, finally failing the second time, but had established great wealth for himself and his own campaigns. And now we find that he wants to demonstrate, to display his wealth and his glory for all of his people to see. He wants them, in other words, to have a sense of pride, a belonging to the Persian Empire so that you notice in verses 7 and 8, again, drinks were served in golden vessels. Vessels of different kinds And the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. You think about the wedding supper at Cana and the wine that flowed there. There's an edict we read in verse 8. Drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, no, no mandatory drinking here. Perhaps gives us some insight into the nature of Ahasuerus' rule. What sort of a king was he? Without that rule, would men have implied a necessity to drink along with Ahasuerus or for fear of retaliation? Perhaps. That shortness of temper, it seems we, we're soon going to learn about as he punishes Queen Vashti in verses 10 and following. I want to talk to you just a moment about the plot of Esther. In the foreground of this letter, and some would say that the main reason we have the book of Esther is it justifies a single festival in Israel called Purim. Uh, They celebrate it to this day. Um, Purim, we're going to learn, is about the casting of lots But they celebrate it to this day around the time that we celebrate um, Easter. So the justification surely in the foreground is the presentation of this festival. And some look upon this, they say, well, uh, they question uh, whether we should include the book of Esther in the Old Testament canon because 
In the Dead Sea Scrolls, it is the only book of the Old Testament that is not found. Some reason that uh, the Essene sect did not include Esther because they did not and would not celebrate Purim. In the foreground, then, is the justification of this festival. It is the only book that we find it mentioned in. In the background of Esther is God's covenantal promises to his people. You think about where we are in Israelite history, a scattered people, a beaten people, a people who many of which have not chosen to return to their homeland. So that here we find Esther and Mordecai still living in Susa, seemingly with no intention to go back, no intention to go and worship at the temple to offer sacrifices to their covenant God. Israel truly is on tender soil now. Will they last as a people? Can a people exist who have no place in the Hebrew Bible? Esther does not come uh, after Ezra, Nehemiah, and before Job. It comes after the book of Daniel. Esther is toward the end of the Hebrew canon, immediately after Daniel's prophecy. Why? Uh, Because Daniel, uh, beginning there, as we note in Daniel chapter 7, he prophesied, he foresaw uh, four kingdoms arising against the people of God before God's kingdom would arise and conquer these foreign invaders. In fact, turn with me just for a second over to Daniel chapter 7. We'll find how this ties in to the book of Esther. Daniel chapter 7. Beginning in verse 1, you remember, <clears throat> in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, uh, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. This is the Assyrian kingdom. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it, and behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. This is the Persian kingdom. It was raised up on one side, it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. And after this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And Daniel continues and gives uh, four, the succession of four kingdoms. And here we find ourselves uh, in Esther, the Jews facing yet another foe, the Persian Empire, the empire of the bear. The covenant people of God indeed are in a very tenuous position. No longer a kingdom, scattered and intermingled amongst other 
people. But what we find is that not unlike the story of Joseph, God will raise up a deliverer for his people. Esther presents the rise to power of an unlikely hero, an orphan girl who is made the queen of a vast empire and the savior of her people. Well, there's one significant aspect of Esther that we ought to touch on at the beginning and then think about as we go along. And one of the prominent details or lack of detail, as it were, is the fact that we never have the mention of God. This is not unique to Esther. Song of Songs also does not mention God. Many wonder why would this scripture not include any reference to Yahweh not any reference to the Lord, not any reference to God at all. And reason that perhaps what we see here is the providence of a hidden God. I want you to think with me for just a moment, why is God absent? Is it a literary element? God is still reigning Christian even though you can't see him. I would suggest to you that it is actually a theological element. I want you to turn with me to one last place. If you would, please go to Ezekiel chapter 10. Why doesn't the book of Esther reference God? Look with me for a moment at Ezekiel chapter 10, verses 18 to 19. Here, um, remember at this point, Ezekiel was a resident of the northern kingdom of Israel. He was taken into captivity and he was living. We find, we open in Ezekiel chapter 1, he's by the Kabar uh, River. God called him to be a prophet foretelling the destruction of the southern kingdom. And so God has given him a vision again in chapter 10 of Ezekiel, but we want to begin reading in verse 18. He sees this vision of a wheel within a wheel, the creatures with four faces. And the cherubim mounted up. These were the living creatures that I saw by the Kabar Canal. And when the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted up their wings to mount up from the earth... The wheels did not turn from beside them. When they stood still, these stood still. And when they mounted up, these mounted up with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in them. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. The cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of God of Israel was over them. Do you see what's happening? Remember that in the temple, in the very middle, in the ark, 
where the cherubim with their wings stretched over the ark of God. And this represented the dwelling place of God. And when the Shekinah glory of God would come down, it would stand over the temple. And this ark represented His footstool. What Ezekiel is observing is the glory of God departing from Judah. Verse 18 It lifts up and goes to the threshold of the house. And it continues, and it goes to the east gate. Now turn over with me to chapter 11, verses 22 to 23. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city, and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in the vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea to the exiles. Then the vision that I had seen went up from me, and I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me. What Ezekiel is showing us, what was shown to Ezekiel, was what was to happen to Jerusalem. The glory of God would be Ichabod. No glory. God, by progression, left the temple. He stood on the threshold of the temple, stood at the gate of the city, and then finally Ezekiel looks off and sees him in the east above the mountain. Why do we come then to Esther and there's no reference to God? Because we ought to remember that at this point, they are a people whose God has departed from them. Remember that in Jeremiah chapter 3, he had filed a decree of divorce against them. So consider this now. That here we have a situation in which the glory of God has departed from his people. His covenant protection has departed, and yet, and yet, His kindness and His mercy toward these people continued. Esther demonstrates God's faithfulness to His covenant people. Let me give you just a couple of points of application this evening. You and I should not be surprised by seasons in which the wicked seem to prosper. When we open in the book of Esther in chapter 1, we find a, a pagan king, a pagan king who has extraordinary power and wealth, a vast empire, a conquering king, a king within whose borders lives many of God's remnant people. You, however, should identify the success and the prosperity of the wicked listening. Listen, as an outworking of the plan of God. The success and the prosperity of the wicked is an outworking of the plan of God. Jeremiah, in chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, he lamented 
He lamented the prosperity and the power of the wicked. He he is reasoning within himself, trying to to figure this out. says, you are righteous, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the treacherous thrive? You plant them. You plant them and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. Jeremiah wonders why. Why do the wicked prosper? And we're reminded in the book of Esther as we see the prosperity of a pagan kingdom, we ought to remember that we, you, Christian, as the people of God, you will experience seasons of God's displeasure. You remember that Romans chapter 1, verse 18 says that, that we, are, we, we have a visible representation. His wrath is being revealed from heaven. Why are there hurricanes and earthquakes and natural disasters? We are reminded that God is displeased with humanity in general. In His mercy, Christian, He reminds you of your frailty apart from Him and brings you to Himself. Do not fret when the wicked prosper. Remember that even in their prosperity, God is accomplishing His own plans. Secondly, in the midst of the prosperity of the wicked, remember God's covenant promise. Remember God's covenant promise promise. All history is moving toward one end. All history is moving toward one end. The good and the growth of the church of Jesus Christ. Romans 8.28 reminds you of this. Even though Israel were scattered and weak, God would send a Savior to gather them. Even though you and I go through seasons of despair, seasons where we say, where is the Lord? Why are the wicked prospering? Why even do the faithful of God, why do the covenant people even seem like they're um, departing from Him? God would gather His people again. And through His people, as we find in Esther, God would bring salvation to the whole earth through Christ the Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we we all confess to You with one heart that we are tempted to despair. We all wonder, if your word is true, and you love the church, and the church is represented in Daniel as a little stone that grows into a great stone that covers the earth, if it's represented in the parables of Jesus Christ, it is a mustard seed that grows up into a great bush that, that the birds can nest in, 
Why does it seem like we face so much adversity? Why does it seem like the wicked prosper? We wonder that out loud, Father. You are just. You are a rewarder of the righteous, not of the wicked. Why do you cause them to take root? Father, we ask that you would stir our hearts to desire your blessing. That the more we see the prosperity of the wicked, we would not be tempted to despair. But Father, that we would demonstrate our faith and our faithfulness by crying out to you. You are our God. You are our hope. We don't have hope in anything else. Not in horses, not in chariots. You are our Savior. You are our rock. You are our Redeemer. You are our stronghold. Father, we pray as we learn this morning, arise, O Lord, and save us. Smite our enemies on the cheek and break their teeth. Salvation is from You, O Lord, and our trust is in You. We praise You in the name of Christ. Amen.